It is Pet Chat on a Wednesday afternoon, and we're going straight to the telephone uh, this time around. Good morning, uh, good afternoon, rather. Andy from Belbert, you've got a question for our vet uh, this afternoon about doves. Um, yeah, great. Uh, I just I've got a couple of female white, um, I guess they're fantail doves, and um, I've I've had them here for a couple of years, and like every winter we bring them indoors. Um, just sort of wondering what sort of what they can cope with. I've heard conflicting stories about what sort of temperatures they can cope with outdoors. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm thinking that um, there's a couple of factors, obviously the genetics and where they're naturally from, but there's also the fact that you've had them a couple of years means they will acclimatise to the environment. Um, it probably depends also on that local microclimate around their aviary. Um yep. Are they in an aviary or just in cages? They are in an aviary, yeah. What is it? Probably about um, just over two by two, sort of. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's a fair few trees. I mean, I am trying to create that. And they also live, you know, they're surrounded by a rabbit hutch as well. So there's a bit of a, there's a bit of organics going on, sure. <laughs> a bit of heat. And, so, um, um, but, yeah, a... I mean, we bring them in for that month. Yeah. Probably they're really frosty. Yeah, it gets um, a bit chilly out at Bellbird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any other birds in the aviary with them? No, no, just them. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't had any experience with doves uh, to speak of, but I'd just be looking at the um, how you've got the aviary set up, you know, which aspect is, is it facing north or south or whatever, um, just to harness the, the power of the sun, um, whether you've got um, shelter or, or, you know, covering on different sides because that'll probably stop things like breezes and so on. As far as um, those really chilly mornings, I think that um, the thing about birds is that they're very, very good at regulating their body temperature. Their normal body temperature is actually a couple of degrees hotter than people. So they usually run at about um, 40 degrees. And the uh, the reason they can do that um, or maintain that is that they're their feathers actually provide such good insulation, hence why we have uh, feather-down quilts, because they're yeah, yeah. so so effective. And what actually happens is the feathers capture the air against the skin, and they hold that air, and it warms up, and it provides a very good insulation. Yeah, so, yeah, they're definitely fluffed up in the morning. Yeah, I think they would cope reasonably well, but obviously there's going to be days when you think... Yeah, that's going to be a bit chilly overnight. If it's really no problem, then obviously you're safe to have them inside. But um, I would, I would think they'd cope pretty well um, over the whole season. But yeah, again, I guess. Yeah. Like I don't know, I don't know their origins. I mean, I, I found them. I think they, um, someone mistook them for white um, pigeons and released them for a wedding. Oh. And um, so there they were, just sort of sitting, waiting to be eaten. Oh so, um, no! That's, yes. that's how we got them. So I'm not sure how. Um, but I mean, I've, I have sort of gradually acclimatised them a bit more to the cold, and I mean they're they're perpetually nesting, poor girls. Yes. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I guess they're keeping warm. And if you've got nest boxes and things like that, you know they they would stay very warm in that environment. It's really just when you get the cool uh, breezes coming through, or you get the frost on top. So yeah. as long as the shading is okay, if it's facing north facing, uh, in winter it's going to capture that morning sun. But um, overall, I think uh, they would probably cope very well. And I think unless someone else wants to call in 
and give us some other advice if they have doves or similar birds. Like pigeons would be similar anyway, and most of them stay outside, obviously. You're looking at me, Dr Dave. I've got no clue. <laughs> no, I think we're done. <laughs> I think we're done. <laughs> okay. Cheryl, sure, let's move on to you today. A very special day today, isn't it? It is. It's the um, National Kid and Pet Day. Now, animals are really calming. They have an important health and psychological benefits for children. So... It's really important to consider having a pet for your child to grow up with. Research, um, there's been a lot of research and it's really, really well documented that having pets helps children develop many skills. Everything from communication, responsibility, nurturing skills, which are just so important right throughout life, empathy, a caring attitude, even a higher self-esteem. All of these simple things just by having a relationship with a pet. How, at what age should we start thinking about having the kids uh, around pets, do you think? Often people have um, pets before they even have children. So often a baby's born into a household with pets and that's a really nice way to introduce your baby to the pet. They have the pet to see if they could handle the uh, responsibility of a third person. In that's the... right, that caring, <laughs> empathy, nurturing skills that they learn by having a pet. Mm. And studies have also shown that children who own pets have less risk of allergy and asthma. Um, there are some other benefit, beneficial flow-ons too. Pets help reduce stress in children and anxiety. So these are really helpful, particularly if a child has gone through some post-traumatic stress. Um, and that helps children emotionally. They're a great comfort if a child is feeling sad or lonely um, or even a little afraid. Okay, so as long as uh, the parents don't end up having to, you know, when the kid gets sick of the dog or the cat or whatever, they end up doing all the cleaning up and caring for it. But other than that, you're okay. Yeah, look, I, I do think parents need to um, certainly show mm -hmm. responsibility in leading children how to and teaching them how to care for pets. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, those responsibilities ultimately do fall back on the parent. But, you know, guiding them along. Educationally, pets are really um, great for uh, for children to learn reading because pets make great listeners um, and it can help with a child reading so they sit and read to the dog often sharing the pages or, the, or they're cuddling up with their cat sharing those pages and showing the you know the puppy or the pussy cat what's going on so it helps with their um, their ability to learn to read and many schools have pets coming in um, to learn or for teachers to help with therapy dogs um, helping to teach children to read because quite often children prefer to read to a dog rather than to another person. They don't feel so intimidated. I guess as well you can get, you, you've got a new skill whether it's learning, reading or seeing or whatever and you're a bit embarrassed with mum or dad or the family around but you find to do it in front of the dog. Yeah, they don't judge you so that the children feel a lot more comfortable sitting reading and those programs that work with the children are excellent. Um, pets are great fun to watch as well. I mean, they have all goofy antics and, you know, watching puppies as they play and also even a cat just cleaning itself. It has the ability to help a child stop focusing on themselves and look at the dog or the cat um, doing that. And that flow-on effect helps them feel good and makes them feel really happy. So there's so many life lessons that a child can have um, growing up with a pet. And most importantly, they learn unconditional love. And we've got uh, Martina joining us at the moment. Martina from Coal Point, you've got a question about a dog that's got some hiccups. Yes, I do. Um, his name's Joe, and he's a long-haired Jack Russell. The last few weeks, oh, days I should say, he's had hiccups either after he eats, during he eats, or later, like at two in the morning. Mm. And how old is Joe, Martina? He's about six. Okay. Um, and you've had him since he was a pup? 
almost. You're right. Yeah, I haven't been six months old. Oh, okay. Now, has he had this problem before? No, he hasn't. No, it's just a recent onset. Okay. Well, the interesting thing with the hiccups, what's actually happening is that there's a nerve that runs down to the diaphragm. Now, that's the muscle that separates the thorax or the chest and the abdomen, and it's what yep. helps us breathe, and it contracts violently. And interestingly, it's thought that it's triggered when the nerve the nerve runs over the surface of the heart and it picks up an electrical signal. So oftentimes the hiccup is synchronised with your heartbeat, a little bit of um, trivia. The other thing is that that nerve is called the vagus nerve, um, which is Latin for wandering because it's a very long nerve and it travels all over the body. And that's where we get the word vagrant and vagary from. So back to um, Joe, the um, question is, is it just something that is random and as in people and, uh, you know, um, is it just something not to worry about, it'll go away, or is it something a little more sinister? And it kind of depends. Very often we'll see dogs that are actually... Uh, develop hiccups. The reason I asked about age is it's more common in younger dogs um, for various reasons associated with the way the nerves are but um, like kids if you like. Um, But in older dogs it's less common. Oftentimes we do see it associated with eating. Now the theories are, and I think these are theories, is that, because we don't know for sure, is that probably when they're swallowing um, then very often I find dogs will get this when they ingest a lot of air. So what happens is that the stomach gets stretched a little bit and um, so it's very often associated with eating or shortly afterwards, just as you were telling us. Um, And then that'll then, stretching that uh, stomach causes the nerve to get triggered and then they develop the the hiccups. So what... um, What we usually want to determine is just to make sure that there's not another cause for the nerve to be triggered or stimulated. We tend to assume or that most of the time it's just going to be a, a random thing and it's nothing, but occasionally there have been some dogs that have gastrointestinal disease or some disease of the nerves that can tr- cause this. And I think if it's a persistent thing, like starting to stick around for a long time, then, um, you know, it's it's certainly worth investigating. The difficulty is that because we're talking about these nerves and, and so on and they're kind of down there, it's very hard to assess the nerve function and to assess, you know, what the actual cause is without really diving into some pretty extensive kind of imaging, whether it's ultrasound or CT or things like that. So most of the time it'll go away. Um, some Everybody's got their own little remedy, you know, give them a drink of water or scare them or things like that. The fact that it's happening later on, two in the morning and so on, uh, look, it's probably not any more sinister because of that. Um, but I think if it's persisting and just doesn't go away, it might disappear in the next few days and then everything's hunky-dory. But I'd certainly um, suggest you see a veterinarian if, you know, two weeks' time we're still doing it. Um, I think in humans, the world record for hiccuping is like, you know, 40, 50 years. So, No way. Yeah, I, it <laughs> might even be longer than that. I'm not sure I'm a fan of some of your remedies there, though, like just scaring the poor dog. <laughs> uh, it, no, you, no. You're, you're one of these people that sort scare of... Scare people. You're one of these people that stands behind a corner and rah, yells at people, aren't you? <laughs> what sort of a person I, would do that? You know, my, my personal <laughs> remedy for hiccups for myself is drink a glass of water while um, doing a headstand. 
Did you actually do this? No. <laughs> but I've been, told, I've been told it works. Ah, do as I say, not as I do or don't do in that Correct. case. Correct. And we did learn something there, though, didn't we? This vagus nerve. The vagus nerve. And, and it's where vagrancy comes from. Va- yes, that's right. And there's another nerve as well, the phrenic nerve, um, and it's triggering that. But... Um, yeah, the the vagrancy, vagrants, yeah. So is that kind of like you go to Vegas, wait, spend all of your money, then you become a vagrant? No? <laughs> Jokes are getting worse. And hello to Faye from East Maitland. You've got a lorikeet that started uh, feather plucking. Got to say that nice and slow. Dr Dave, what are your thoughts? Hi, Faye. Um, Hi. So how long has this uh, your lorikeet been doing this? Well, he's been doing it uh, since before Christmas. Oh, okay. Well, that and it's, it's a fair while now, and yeah. he's three and a half years old, mm-hmm. and he's a male, of course. Right. Okay. And and um, I've had him to the vet uh, on a, four times now for this problem, yeah. For the same problem, and yes. we've been going through all these different things. He thought it was hormonal at first. Yep. And then he said uh, a week ago. Uh, he's going to treat him for anxiety. Yep. Okay. And um, and I've got him outside at the moment, and he's just squawking, and I can't see anything there that would make him squawk or irritate him or anything. Okay. So, well, the um, the thing now you've only got the one bird, have you? Yeah, that's right. Mm. So lorikeets generally hang out in um, pairs and small flocks. Um, yeah. So oftentimes they might be vocalising because there are other birds in the neighbourhood Yeah. as well. So I wouldn't take that as a sign of distress at all. It's pretty can be on a normal behaviour. Oh, yeah. Um, it's interesting that you describe some of the things that you've talked with your vet about and looked at. And I, I was going to say... They're the kind of problems that we tend to see and how we might treat them. And feather plucking in birds and lorikeets are, I guess, a really good example because they're a pretty intelligent species. Yeah. And um, it's a very complicated problem. And That's what he said, yeah. Yes. The reason, the reason I mention, say it like that is because you often kind of need to go through a lot of different ideas, investigations and treatments, and unfortunately... Um, you know, that's kind of just the way it is with feather plucking. Now, a lot of the time it could be behavioural and we talk about uh, environmental enrichment, making sure that they're not getting bored and so on, making sure that they're, uh, you know, got in their cage or aviary, they've got plenty of things that will keep them occupied and yeah. so on. And that's a very important part. But there, we do see some medical problems and as you've discussed, things like hormonal disease, we also see liver disease in lorikeets as a cause. Mm-hmm. Um, because the liver processes toxins and um, that can sometimes show up and cause itchiness in their skin and that's, yeah. a, that's a very common thing. Bacterial infections on the skin can also cause that itchiness. Uh, parasites are less common but usually they're treated pretty early on in uh, a course of investigation just to get it out of the way as a problem. Yeah. Um, when you get down to the stage of saying whether we've got an anxiety issue, then there's two parts to it. One is, and this is the same, is true for dogs and cats and, and probably for people as well, but I'm not a human doctor, yeah. is that we'll use medication, um, but the, the medication just helps the anxiety while we do other things that are designed yeah. to change the behaviour. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what we call behavioural modification. So it's not relying on the medication on its own. It's yeah. ha- the medication helps relieve the anxiety so that we can make some other changes. And it's, you know, you've just got to work your way through those things um, yeah. little bit by little bit. Some case, well, we let him out every yeah. afternoon. He has a fly around the, the unit, Excellent. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't like him squawking too much because you've got to think of other people living here. And, um, you know, and he's outside at the moment and he's been squawking, not, not a, not, not like trying to call other birds in. It sounds like he's in pain or something, you know. They've got a very, very shrill and loud. uh, voice haven't they and they've been beautiful to hear when you walk down to the park and uh, you know they're flying around and you can hear them so they're very very loud and um they they obviously come across and it sounds that way but i wouldn't say that he'd necessarily be distressed and um voicing it in that way what i would say is just to keep in contact with your veterinarian about this and i think just to reinforce that probably what they've already said to you it is a complicated problem in some cases if you haven't had blood tests done, that's often worthwhile. And yeah. in some cases, you need a biopsy of the skin. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're getting to those sort of stages, it's a bit invasive and um, they'll cope with it okay. But you just need to work through one step at a time. And certainly some of those medications and the medical approaches that you've looked at are usually part and parcel of what we do for every bird that's feather plucking. So keep going with that plan, and I think you're on the right track. Got some help for the caller about the doves a little earlier on, haven't you? Yeah, well, I haven't got doves. I've never heard of a proper fantail dove. I've got purebred, full-blood fantail pigeons, mm-hmm. and he was saying that they're getting cold and shivering, and my answer to that is make sure the Pigeon coop or aviary is facing north. Mm-hmm. Have solid sides, east and west, yep. and just some shade cloth when it does get cold, mm. and, and put it there and roll it down and put a hockey strap or something down there. Then they won't shiver. There you go. But he's talking. He's talking about doves, but I've got pigeons. But the same basics. Yeah, and I, I think the big other yeah, well, they are the same, same breed, oh, same sort of thing. And in winter and everything, never clean the feathers and the poo and everything else because that creates sulphur. Right. Okay, so yeah. some interesting thoughts there from Neil. I, I'd like, I like that advice. I think we've got uh, keeping the facing north and the shade cloth holding that down I think is a very good idea too. Sounds like we are getting to the heart of the matter this afternoon. <coughs> Sharon from Tanamba, you've got a question for Dr Dave about some of your dogs at home. Yes. Hello Dave. Hi Sharon. How I, can we help? I have a Maltese Shih Tzu. She's about six years old mm-hmm. and I also have a Maltese Cross Bisson and both dogs have developed anal gland problems. Oh, no. We have been to the vet several times on an average of every two months, mm-hmm. which manually squeezes their glands mm-hmm. and gives them a needle, but not getting to the problem what's causing mm. the um, blockages in the anal glands. My daughter, Sarah, she um, every fortnight squeezes their glands and we get a lot of muck out. 
Um, we feed them Lucky Dog minis, biscuits, because they're only tiny dogs. Yeah. Um, they'll have a chicken neck through the week and maybe a bit of leftover sausages from our meals and stuff like that. Where am I going wrong? Because now the smaller pup, who's only about a year old, has developed it too. Mm. Okay. But we're not getting to the bottom of the problem. Literally. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It, look, it's, 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 it's a funny thing because it seems to be a problem in smaller breed dogs. We don't tend to see it much in larger dogs. I think that um, your attention to the diet is very important. Oftentimes we talk to people about the level of insoluble fibre. So there's two types of fibre. There's soluble fibre, there's insoluble fibre. And yeah. that might be an area, first of all, to address. And the, a couple of ways to do that. One is you can put Metamucil powder on their food because that's, okay, that's a high concentration of insoluble. It's also got soluble fibre, which aids in digestion, but it's the insoluble fibre. The other way that I've often seen people do is to supplement their diet with things like green beans, carrots, those sort of things, because they're high in insoluble fibre as well. Um, okay. So that's an important thing. The second thing is that there's a bit of a debate about regularly emptying or squeezing these glands out, does it actually trigger more of a production and, and so they're more likely to then need them to be emptied and then every time you do it, it just makes it more likely that you're going to have more problems. So I'm in two minds about that. I think there certainly are cases we see where they get infections and I've seen uh, tapeworm segments caught inside the anal glands. I've seen ticks inside there. Um, obviously, they, they don't just present with recurrent obstructions they're actually presenting with disease related to those things if we see infection then oftentimes um, we need to think about perhaps surgically removing them but there are some risks associated with that and I think the fact that you've got a number of dogs uh, I would be looking at other ways of managing it not surgery um, and then finally the other thing is dogs that get a lot of skin disease and your breed of dogs, they are dogs that are prone to allergies and skin disease, they often seem to have problems with this as well. So uh -huh. oftentimes I'd be looking at number one, diet. Number two, yeah. making sure that we're looking after skin. And number three is um, maybe just trying to reduce the frequency of emptying them. Basically, the glands are supposed to be there. They're supposed to be filling up. It's the insoluble fibre uh, in their gut that actually triggers them to be emptied. So um, unless there's an infection there, then we probably don't need to be squeezing them out as much. Long-term skin problems may be surgery, but that's usually about the realm of it, I'd say. And I'm pretty much sure we've got to the, the bottom of that as well. I, th I think you know, that Sharon, now, now, Sharon, you, now yeah. you're recycling the jokes. Uh, but it was been three minutes, so that's ah. okay. I think Sharon's attempt was far better than ours, don't well you? Well done. What do you yes. reckon, Cheryl? Yep, Come on. absolutely. We're <laughs> okay. at the end of that. <laughs> there we go. Look, we've got time for one more. Graham from Aberdeer. Now, you're uh, looking for another dog. You've sadly lost a pet not that long ago, am I right? Yeah, that's right. I bought a crawly. Pardon me, I'm a bit sad. Uh bought a collie cross with a Kelpie. Mm -hmm. uh, had him for 18 years. Wow. And... Um, he fell down the back steps and broke his hips. Oh. Um, so um, I've had a cooling off period and a mate of mine said, look, it's like riding a horse, get it, you know, get back in the saddle and go and get another one, mate, and, and go out to, um, like you did before, and save a life. Mm. Go to one of these um, shelters and, yep. you know, 
uh, which I will do. Now, um, a question for you, Dr. David, is um, now um, someone suggested to get a, uh, a long-haired... Um, uh, oh, hang on. It's on the tip of my tongue. If I stick it out, I'll see it. Um, uh, <clears throat> it's a little um, fox terrier, yeah. You get a long hair and a short short hair. They reckon the long hair is more intelligent. Is that correct or, or not? Oh, I know a couple of short hair fox terriers who'd argue with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, I'm listening. I'm I, all ears. <laughs> I think the, the thing about... Like selecting a dog, and obviously, like you're a dog man, right? Oh, I'm always so, a dog man. I yeah. had eagles. I'm, I'm born and bred in, in on a farm. Yeah, so that's that's why you had the Kelpie cross border collie. They're a farm dog. They love a bit of exercise. You got to keep a couple of sheep with them. Yeah, as well. I'm, I'm in the city now, Dave. Okay, yeah, Dave, so Doctor Dave. Yeah, the, the sheep will have to wait. Um, I th- the thing about if you're choosing a long haired dog. And there's lots of different small breeds with long hair. Then you've got an extra factor of you've got to look after the long hair. Oh, okay. Okay, yep. so that's regular grooming. Your bathing's a bit more of a hassle. Yeah. You know, they're clipped a couple of times a year, perhaps that sort of thing. So just take that into account. Um, yep. Nothing wrong with doing it, but if you're used to, if you you know not usually grooming, then this is going to be an extra thing that you haven't seen before. Um, um, so that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I'm definitely going with the short hair now. <laughs> you talked sure, me into it. Cheryl's, yeah, I've got Cheryl's short kicking, hair. I'm, I'm baldy. Cheryl's <laughs> no, kicking me under we'll the match, table. We'll match I thought, you know, I've been missing my hair, having yeah. a long-haired one. You know, it's sort of, um, you know, a bit of, um, what do they call it, um, <clears throat> you know, man thing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, you know, walk, <laughs> anyway, uh Oh, I'll definitely get a so the, uh, a dog and, and save then, one from the pound. I've, yeah. I've got a they were good out there uh, uh, one of the pounds. Can I mention the pound or? Well, there's a couple. Obviously, there's a couple around the area, and really, you just uh, some of them have online. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm Catalogs and so on, um, but often you really need to go and see uh, each place and look and look at what they offer and what the dogs are and see which one you get a connection with yeah i think okay dave we'll do that yeah Yeah. i've got to go down to uh i do a lot of shopping down at maitland and uh and um there is one a good one down there which i've been getting uh well my friend he he saved one you know from death row and this is what i'm going to do you know like i i want i I reckon they're the best thing to do and not only that they sent me um, a medallion thing and it's got um um Graham cares for animals. Good on you. Got a little paw on it. There I thought go. that was great. Good on you, Graham. Wonderful, Graham, and good, to hear. Uh, good luck getting back on the horse. So, as they say, with uh, with your new dog, your new rescue dog. I think we're just about out of time. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for coming in, Doctor Dave. No worries. Thanks and Cheryl Shaw, thank you as well. This thank afternoon. you. And the listeners had much better jokes than any of us put together. I would say. Well, I know. we've been no. practicing all week. <laughs> <laughs> we should. I'll, they just, I'll they dust just come them on off. And, Boom, they just they just do it. Anyway, that's Pet Chat, Pet Chat for another week. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com. <laughs>